Uh, Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word that it uh, does illuminate for us who you are, uh, who we are, uh, what our world is like. And um, Lord, I pray uh, that this incident, Lord, that was written almost 2,000 years ago, uh, Lord, that you would illuminate it to show its relevance uh, for our lives today. Uh, Lord, do this by the power of your spirit, we ask. Amen. Uh, Let's think about things that go together. Things that go together. You've got uh, peanut butter and jelly. Uh, salt and pepper, uh, Scooby and Shaggy, uh, Cheech and Chong, uh, Cheech and Chong, anybody? Um, you've got Kentucky and bourbon, you've got Kentucky and basketball, you've got Kentucky and horses, now maybe even Kentucky and football, um, thunder and lightning, bacon and eggs. All these things are, go together. And really with any of these, it's hard to imagine one without the other. But the same could be uh, said about a husband and a wife. Uh, I came across a report this week uh, about a study that was done that's on what they call the widowhood effect. Uh, it's been done. Studies have been, lots of studies have been done on this, but the one that I found was um, to study the widowhood effect. It, it studies uh, that when a person loses their spouse and then becomes a widow or a widower, there's a noticeable spike in their mortality rate. The late, one of the studies I looked at was in Dunn 2011. It was done by a guy named Paul Boyle, uh, who was at St. Andrews uh, University over in Scotland. And he studied 58,000 men and 58,000 women to determine if the widowhood effect is, in fact, true. And what he found is that there's a 40% higher risk of death after becoming a widow or widower than you would expect otherwise. Pretty crazy, isn't it? 40%. And while the risk is most evident in those six months right after uh, becoming a widow or widower, uh, the mortality rate continues uh, to be higher if you're a widow or widower for the next decade after losing a partner. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you've been married all these years for multiple decades, you've spent more time with this other person than you have anybody else in the world, you get to a place where you're dependent on each other for every part of your life. Your household duties, you've, been, you've had those set in stone for a long time. You've had your financial rhythms in place for a long time. Uh, you've been gaining emotional support from that person for a very, very long time. Your relationships are inseparable. You, all, you have, essentially, each of your families have become the same. Your friends have become the same. And then you lose your spouse. And it's at this death that it forces one to really evaluate, wow, The depth of my love, the depth of my dependence, the depth of my togetherness has hinged on this person. And that's when disaster can strike. That's when you can literally die of a broken heart. And so as you think about the kingdom of God and how it comes, it comes with this interdependent relationship between word and deed, body and soul. And if you split them, disastrous things can be the consequence. So think about it, word and deed. You guys know what word is. Word ministries are like preaching, counseling, evangelism, Bible studies, all word ministries. And you've got deed ministries. Deed ministries begin uh, to to look at social and systemic issues that affect the poor, while also being real personal with the poor and meeting needs for food and shelter, jobs, transportation, healthcare, are all the things that meet the needs of the body, the physical. In different churches and in in, in Christian traditions, they see this relationship very differently. You can really put it on a spectrum. 
Uh, way over here you've got that says uh, the only ministries that really mattered are deed ministries. Needs, our ministries are all about uh, addressing the needs of the body. It's way over here. The preaching, evangelism, all that really doesn't have a function in, in, in the life of the church. You take one step this way and you say, oh yeah, word ministries are necessary, but deed ministry is really where it's at. And here you've got them balanced. You say, no, they're bo- they, they both need each other. They're both necessary, word and deed. And then you take one step here, and you, you guys know where I'm going. Uh, that word ministry really is, is, more to, is more important than deed ministry. And then over here you say, oh, the, all that matters really is the soul. So let's just do word ministry. Let's just preach, and let's just do evangelism. That, that, that is what matters. And if you really look at our church, you literally look at our denomination, you really look at our tradition, uh, we, we really don't say that they're interdependent. We really don't say that they're equally important, that they're both necessary. What we, do, but what we act like is that we're here. At best, we may even be here. What we do really well in our tradition, in our church, in our denomination, is that preaching's emphasized, evangelism's emphasized, counseling's emphasized, maybe, We don't ignore the needs of the poor. They're necessary, but they're not as important. And what this does is it flies in the face of what we believe, because it's just not true. Think about it. Think about when Adam and Eve were created. They were created with souls and with bodies. It's not like they were disembodied souls, and then all of a sudden when they sinned, they got a body. That's not what happened. Think about Jesus. Jesus came with a body. He just wasn't this spirit floating around who preached. He not only just preached, but he also healed people's bodies and addressed the needs of the poor. And when Jesus returns, we're going to have bodies. We're going to live a very physical existence in the new heavens and the new earth. So word and deed ministries are both necessary because you have a body and you have a soul. And that's what we're going to see in our passage tonight. We're going to see that Peter's going to come and he's going to address the needs of the body in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 3 in this healing. And then he's going to address the needs of the soul in verses 11 to 26 when he preaches the sermon. Uh, so let's, let's read it together. I'll make some comments as we go. I, I thought about, man, how, how do I condense this down? I just couldn't. All right. So let, let me, um, I'll make some points as we go along, partly so you don't fall asleep. Uh, which, by the way, if you were reading through Acts, uh, uh, I think it was this morning, it's a reading. Did you hear about the guy who fell asleep? and fell out of the third story and died during a, P, P, Paul's preaching. Okay, maybe I was the only one who read it uh, this morning, but uh, he fell asleep during a sermon, but Paul healed him. So I can't, I, I, may, not, I, I may heal you if you fall asleep uh, and you fall and hit your head and die. Okay, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate at the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Jesus, Peter, and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Alms just means money. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, money. Verse 6, but... Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. 
And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't, you uh, wouldn't you be amazed? Uh, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, this is the guy who was just healed. He's been leaping around praising God. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Notice his strategy, Peter's strategy in his preaching. Uh, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though it is by our power or our piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Hammered him, didn't he? To this we are all witnesses. And his name, by the faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. All right. So remember, he's talking to Jews here. They're in Jerusalem. He brings out Moses, uh, which is you're, you're swinging a big stick if you're bringing out Moses with a bunch of Jews. And look what he continues to do in verse 24. And he says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, big character in the Old Testament, and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, another big stick, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. So do you see what he did? He just brought up all that Old Testament stuff and said, hey, you of all people, you Jews, you've got, uh, you've got more to go with here than anybody else on the face of the earth. Everything that's happened before now was, was predicting and foreshadowing the Jesus who has come. So you should recognize these things. You shouldn't be so amazed that this lame guy now walks. So do you see how he addresses the physical and the healing and the spiritual with the sermon? And remember what's happened before this. The last passages that we look at at the end of chapter 2, we see this idyllic community. It's all sweetness in life for them. It's, 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 it's joy, it's love, it's peace. That's what reigned with them. They had received the blessing of the Holy Spirit. They had received the forgiveness of sins. And now they shared with anyone who had need. They learned together. 
They worshiped together, and their numbers grew. Doesn't it sound amazing? Well, as soon as you get to the end of chapter 2 and you start chapter 3, uh, conflict comes. The Jews try to shut this thing down, this, this church, this Christian community, these people who believe that Jesus raised from the dead and is the Christ. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, what we're going to see is this conflict. But it all started with this healing of all things. This healing. And Peter and John, you know, they were just doing what they normally did. They're going to the temple. Remember in, ch in chapter 2, then chapter 2 said that they went to the temple on a regular basis. And on their way, they see this man who's asking for money. This just wasn't just a guy who was poor. This was a guy who was lame. And it wasn't just a guy who was on crutches and had a hard time working. This is a guy who couldn't walk. That's why he had to be carried there by his friends. Not only was this guy who couldn't walk, this is a guy who hasn't been able to walk since he was born. His disability is severe. And so what he does every day is, is he asks these religious folks. I mean, they're easy targets, right? They're going to church. And he asks them for money. And when he approaches Peter and John, he sees them. Peter and John, you just think this is going to be mechanical charity where they, they empty, they give them the dollar bills, they give them a few pieces of change. But it isn't mechanical charity. It's an intensely personal encounter. Do you see it when he starts, when, did you notice it when he said, Peter and James looked at him and said, look at us. Their eyes meet. He wants to have this personal uh, relationship with this guy, not just, hey, leave me alone, here's a buck. And the guy thinks that his greatest need is money, but what he gets is what he really needed. He got healing. This guy got a lot more than he bargained for. He decided he was going to come sit there that day so that he might get some money so that he could eat. And what he ends up getting is a lot more than that. He ends up with the ability to walk. He ends up praising God in a way he never had before. And this is true for any Christian. Didn't you get more than what you bargained for when you came to Jesus? Now, I've grown up around the church. It'd be more accurate to say when I was a kid uh, that I, my second home was the church. Uh, my grandparents on my mom's side went to the church I went to, and uh, they were the ones kind of in charge of the mulch and the flowers, so a lot of times I'd go up there with them. I'd usually end up running the halls by myself and trying to find hiding places, so when Sunday came, I'd have better hiding places than my friends. And uh, so I was there with my grandparents. I'd be there with my mom. My mom would be there preparing for a Sunday school lesson. I'd be there on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. And in the context of the church that I grew up in anyways, this isn't true for every church uh, in this denomination. It certainly wasn't true of all the churches in my town. But what you got from the church was what they really thought was important. And what they thought was really important was not going to hell and making sure no one else did either. Let me put it positively. Uh, only thing that mattered was going to heaven and doing evangelism. Now, these aren't bad things, but it's a really thin gospel. It's a really thin gospel that couldn't address things that I had questions about. Things like suffering. Things like dealing with deeply held sin patterns. Things like cultural engagement. Things like the hunger I had for joy. And even as a child, I was like this man. I was holding out my hands and I needed more than what I was getting. Then college came. College, everything changed. And a lot of the change happened when I uh, read the quote that I'm about ready to read to you. So I see Lewis. Here's what he said. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition, or for me, religion, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. Changed everything for me. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been fooling around with small desires. Things like loose change. Things like a thin gospel. Thinking uh, that is going to be your cure. But maybe that's not what you're dealing with. Maybe for you it's a promotion. Maybe for you it's a spouse. Maybe for you it's getting pregnant. Maybe for you it's a fixer-upper perfect kitchen. Maybe for you after last night is UK going to the SEC championship game. Uh, Maybe for you it's a certain number on a scale. And when your mind goes idle, when you're left to your own thoughts, these are the things that occupy your brain. But maybe you've taken it from daydreaming and you've turned it into prayer. Maybe these aren't just things that occupy your mind space, but these are the things that you pray for. And as you pray for these things, all you're getting is crickets on the other end, nothing. Just a bunch of nothing. So you might say, come on, Marsh, I got a lot bigger things, a lot bigger fish to fry than a fixture upper perfect kitchen. I've got real problems. I have a terminal illness. I have a family member, a loved one with a terminal illness. I've got an addiction. I just can't. I've tried everything. I can't stay sober. Marsh, you don't understand. I've got mental illness. It's got the best of me. It's so bad that suicide has or is a strong consideration for me. And you're telling me that my desires are too weak? You're telling me that desiring freedom from these things is the equivalent of desiring mud pies? Well, put yourself in the man's shoes. The man that received the healing, that guy. And slow the narrative down a thousand times. Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. You hear that? Silver and gold I do not have. Pause. Stop there. You know what that lame guy would have said? What do you mean silver and gold you guys don't have? you got to be freaking kidding me. I've seen you two come in here day after day after day, and for Pete's sake, you're Christians. You're preachers, in fact. You've been talking about this Jesus who's risen from the dead, and you're saying silver and gold I do not have? Doesn't that sound like you? What you're asking for, you're not receiving. Your prayers are going unanswered. All right, unpause. Silver and gold I do not have, pause. But what I have, I give you. This is what God is telling you today. What he has is himself, and this is his greatest gift to give you, friends. This will make you do what the lame man did. 
he was lame, and then he began to walk. And when he found out he could walk, or what he, when he found out he could stand, he walked. And when he found out he could walk, he leapt. And when leaping wasn't going to express all of his joy, what did he do? He praised God. And this is what will happen to you too, friends. When you see that the gift that God wants you to, to give you is himself. When you see that your desires are too weak, that the only desires that you can have that are strong enough, that really meet the ones that have been embedded into your soul, are only going to be met by God himself, not what he can give you. And he gives himself to you, you begin to leap too. You begin to praise God too. But when they healed this lame guy, it caught the eye of the religious community. They were so used to throwing nickels and dimes at him. And now they see him run around singing praise music, and they were impressed. You would be too. It's not every day you see a lame man who begins to walk. But their wonder and amazement are superficial. I don't know if you caught that. It only went about an inch deep. They didn't understand what the, what the miracle signified. And so that's when Peter's got to start preaching. That's when he's got to give the sermon that he does in, in, in verses 11 to 26. And in the sermon, Peter makes it very clear that this act of healing is no magic trick. That this, what just happened, this is everyday work for Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's brought this healing about. And then he turns the corner. Do you see where he turns the corner there in verse 13? In verse 13, he begins to list all the ways that they've rejected this Jesus. The Jesus who is the source of this miracle... They didn't just reject because they didn't see that he was the one behind the miracle, but they rejected him even farther back than that. That they were the ones who handed him over to be killed. They were the ones who disowned him before Pilate. They were the ones who preferred a murderer to be released rather than Jesus. And finally, they were the ones who killed him. They were the ones who killed the very author of life. I know it sounds harsh, but Peter's not interested in flattering the crowd. He's not interested in telling them a bunch of funny stories at the beginning to get his sermon started. Instead, what he does is he jumps right in and he calls them out for the most egregious sin that every single one of us in here has committed. And that's rejecting Jesus. Rejecting Jesus is the very essence of our sinful condition. But their rejection of Jesus wasn't the end of the story. Do you see in verse 15? Here's what you did. Bam, 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 bam. But here's what God did. God raised him from the dead. So their denying of Jesus didn't frustrate God's saving purposes. Their rebellion, your rebellion, can't get God's plans off the tracks. In fact, it's their rejection, it's our rejection, that's been part of God's plan all along to save his people. And this Jesus who raised from the dead, he's still active today. He's not this absentee landlord uh, that, 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 that owns this world and now is going to let it go to pot. He remains here. In this interim, this time between the ascension and his second coming, through his spirit, working in the church, channeling this life-giving energy to bring the kingdom about in the here and the now. That's that Jesus who's around. God raised him from the dead. And now Peter ropes them in. He's told them, here's what you did. Here's what God did. And now here's what you can do. 
Here's how you can respond. I've, Peter's saying, I've laid out all this evidence for you, and there's a way forward. You can either reject Jesus a second time now that I've presented him to you, or you can receive him for the first. There's just no middle ground. So in verse 19, do you see what he tells them? He tells them to do two things. He says, repent and turn to God. He doesn't tell them to get their life right first. Hey, clean up your life so it looks really good. Study the Old Testament and see how all these things point to Jesus since you know the whole thing. And once you're able to say all those things, then then you can come to God. He doesn't say, hey, if you'll write a big check, you can come to God. He doesn't say you can align yourself with this certain political affiliation and then you can come to God. He doesn't say any of that. He says, repent and turn to God. One's negative, repentance. The other one's positive, faith. And both of these, the required conditions for them and the required conditions for us. See, if if you only repent, if that's what you think the Christian life is all about, then you think the, the, the Christian life is really all about staying away from the negative. It's all about leaving your old life. But if that's all that ever happens to you, you've not done the full term. But you might have gone the other way. You might not have left your old life. You just want to cling to all this new stuff, this Christianity stuff, and you want to add God to your life as an appendage, as an extracurricular. But you've got both have to happen. You've got to leave your old life and cling to this new life. That's what faith is. It's not just an addition. It's a subtraction and an addition. And if you do this, a whole world opens up to you. And that's what Peter opens up to them. Do you see what Peter says? If you repent, you turn to God, these three things get to happen to you. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, turn back. Look at them. The first one, do you see it? That your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's number two. Number three. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Three things. This whole new world has now opened up to you. So let's, let's, let's walk through each one. The first one, uh, the blotting out of sin. What he's really saying is a blank slate. You get a blank slate with Jesus. You get infinite do-overs with Jesus. And think about the bl- blank slate this way. Um, I want you to imagine that your sins are written on a chalkboard and permanent marker. Um, I tried that this week in my office. I've got a, uh, um, I've got a chalkboard, and I, I just put a little mark in it. Um, and I used every cleaner I could find in the, in the closet. Uh, they, uh, just right down here. And I, got, I put all those, all those different cleaners on it. So one at a time, wash it off. One at a time, wash it off. None of it would wash it off. I couldn't get that permanent marker out for nothing. And I thought, man, isn't that what this is like for us? We try to put in our spray bottle a bunch of good deeds. Okay, I know my sin haunts me. My shame, my guilt, it haunts me. I know that my sin is real. I'm going to try to do something with it. So I'm going to spray a bunch of good deeds on it. Well, it's not going to come off. You might say, all right, I'm going to put some paint over it. Well, the problem with putting, putting paint over a permanent marker is that it's going to bleed right through. Nothing's going to get that permanent marker off. Nothing's going to get that sin away from the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes your ticket. He pays it. He rips it up. It's done. He remembers your sin no more, Christian. What a gift. This whole new life's been opened up to you, and it starts the blotting out of your sin. 
You see the second thing that happens? The refreshment. The times of refreshing may come. Now, to have your sins blot out, it's glorious, isn't it? But God also wants to fill you in a subjective feeling, might make you uncomfortable, subjective way with refreshment. Because you're going to need refreshment. If you live in this world as a Christian, Satan's attacks, the world's attacks, uh, the attacks from your indwelling sin that still exists, even though it's forgiven, is going to wear you down. And what the gospel does is that it promises us refreshment in the midst of our exhaustion so that we might have a foretaste of heaven. That times of refreshment might come in the presence of the Lord. Third one. You see it. The third one. That he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now here's what he's really saying. He's saying that this restoration project, that the kingdom coming has now begun. And you begin to see it already in the book of Acts. You've had thousands of people come to faith. You've got this lame man who's been healed. And it's going to continue to come in an increasing measure. But there's going to come a time when Jesus returns and this restoration project is going to reach its climax. It's going to reach its desired, uh, destined completion in Jesus' second coming. It's going to be concluded. And what, what an incentive to have to come to faith, isn't it? I know it sounds amazing to have your sin wiped away. I know it sounds amazing to have this times of refreshment that may come. But this statement that Jesus is going to come and complete this resurrection project, restoration project, that he's going to fill you with your spirit so that you can be a part of it before then, gives you vision. It gives you power. It gives you purpose. It puts you inside something much bigger than yourself, the restoration of all things. A whole new world of possibilities opened up. You repent, you turn to God, this whole new world's opened up for you. So now, think about this passage for yourself. Put yourself in the, put yourself in, in, in the feet, in, in the life of that lame man. How's Jesus coming to you and surprised you? How has he given you a lot more than you bargained for? You came to him for this felt need like the lame man did, came for money, and then he overwhelmed you with himself. When did that happen for you? Maybe you see yourself in this lame man for the very first time tonight. For the very first time, in some infantile way, that you've repented of your sin and believed the gospel for the first time. You've been cut to the heart. You've seen that you're the one who killed the author of life. So has your sin been personalized for you? Instead of remaining just this idea that's out here somewhere, the sin that's something that's lurking in your belly. Maybe for you, you've seen, gosh, this blotting out of sins, this times of refreshment, this part of being, part, being a part of the restoration of all things. All this has gone 3D to you for the first time. It's jumped off the page. It's like it came at you. Well, maybe you've come to faith. There's nothing fancy. Just go to God and ask Him for forgiveness and put your faith in what He's done in Christ. It's not some formula that unlocks this treasure box. God's a person. Talk to Him like one. Now think about this passage for ministry. 
Do you see how these two types of ministries fed one another? The physical healing that came to the name of Jesus Christ, what did it open up for Peter? It opened up for him an opportunity to preach. So in this instance, deed ministry was the cause of the word ministry. But the opposite is true, too. Remember, uh, Peter and John, uh, they're on their way uh, to the temple. When they're on their way to the temple, they're more likely on the way to the temple for their spiritual needs. Either they have the need to preach or they have the need to pray. And because they were all about their spiritual needs, they ran into this physical need in the lame man. And they knew that if they were going to preach, if they were going to pray to the God who can uh, raise Jesus from the dead, that they better do something about this. Because if they don't, it's going to nullify their preaching to just ignore this guy. So in this instance, it's the word ministry that spurred on the deed ministry. So you've got to keep these things in proper balance. They really do feed off one another. See, friends, Jesus wants to set all things straight. All things. All things in you, all things in our neighborhood. So that means the kingdom, for the kingdom to come, it's going to have to address the financial inequities that exist in you and exist in our neighborhood. For the kingdom to come means that the opiate epidemic must be solved. For the kingdom to come means that sexual exploitation must be ended. For the kingdom to come means that every person in our neighborhood must have a meaningful vocation. It also means that the gospel must be preached to the poor, the opiate addict, those involved in the sex industry, and those without meaningful work. And the gospel must be preached to you. So how are you off balance? Where do you need to be set straight? Jesus is willing to do this work in you, friends. And he's willing to do it in me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would expand our vision for what the kingdom is and what you want to do in us. Oh, Lord, I pray that, uh, the, that those among us would come to faith, but also pray that we would be uh, spurred on to good deeds with our neighbor. Oh, Lord, do this. In Christ's name, amen.